The people that have experienced it firsthand truly understand it and can help tell the story that we're all trying to tell to help make a difference and help end ALS here by 2035. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. April is National Volunteer Month, an opportunity to highlight the incredible work being done in the fight against ALS in communities all across the country. Whether serving as advocates, leading walk teams, or care and support programs in their communities, our network of volunteers are doing whatever it takes to make ALS a livable disease while supporting the search for a cure. Volunteers like Lindsay Literati, a volunteer and board member for the ALS Association Western Pennsylvania chapter, who joins me today. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for spending time with us this week on Connecting ALS. It's my pleasure to be here and an honor to continue on my dad's memory in whatever ways that I can. Yeah, well, let's jump right in. I think for folks listening at home who who may not have had an opportunity to read the profile on the ALS Association's blog talking about your work in the cause, um, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about your connection to this community? So, um, you know, it's never a community that you you want to be a part of, but right. we always say it's if you find yourself in the situation that my family was with my dad being diagnosed in March of 2019, it's actually the best community to be a part of. Um, we've, you know, come a long way within the organization. And I, I have to say that, you know, those first couple of months after my dad's diagnosis, he dedicated that time very strategically and intentionally to share his news with his closest family and friends. And I think throughout that time, he had a lot of time to process what this means and how it would impact him. And then because he is just, um, he was, he was very methodical in his lifetime and very thoughtful about those around him. He thought, you know, um, after learning about the walk to defeat ALS, uh, we were invited to attend the walk kickoff at PNC park you know, in the pregame ceremonies and things. And he learned of the walk then and thought, you know, it's going to be really important for both, you know, us as a family, of course, him as the center of that and everyone else, you know, that's impacted by ALS. So he, at that point was about, I think, six weeks out from the walk. He asked me to kind of tap into my skill set, marketing, social media, um, communications, fundraising background, and, and start a walk team that he would later name Scooter's Bunch. That's his nickname. And um, we've kind of focused it and themed it around golf, which was one of his passions. Um, Really good golfer and uh, where he spent a lot of his social time and, you know, with both my mom and with his, his golfing buddies. And that was honestly one of the first things that kind of was taken from him. So we, we centered our team around that and honored, honored that part of his life because it was such a big part of it through the walk team. And uh, it sadly lost your father in August, correct? Yes, yes. Um, you know, at, at times it seemed like his progression was was really slow. And at first you wouldn't quite know that there was something wrong. It started back in March, you know, his arms, right arm went. He learned to write with his left arm and had still done everything fairly normally. Worked all the way up until, I guess I've lost track of years at this point, Um, But September of 20, he worked all the way to that point. And so at times it was really slow. And last, I would say about June of 2021, 
we we noticed his progression kind of taking a different um, pace. And so, you know, over time, those first few months um, of the summer, we spent a lot of time just helping him, you know, navigate those really significant challenges, which were largely focused on his swallowing and eating habits. And um, he did, unfortunately, um, pass in August of 2021. And um, you know, it was a it was a difficult couple of weeks on hospice for him and our family, but, you know, I, I mentioned how selfless he was in the beginning of our, our conversation. And again, that shined through those last couple of months with him. He was really taking a look at how everything was impacting all of us, um, including himself. So we're really close to those last couple of months and spent a lot of time together as a family, which was, you know, a blessing in, in, it, in its own way terribly sorry for your loss. Uh, and I'm interested in talking about your continued dedication to volunteering and serving the ALS community, serving the ALS associations. How, how do you balance giving yourself time to go through the grieving process, but maintaining your your commitment to the fight and, and your, your commitment to continuing to, to volunteer and, and, and work for the cause? It's been an interesting um it's not been quite a year, obviously, since we lost my dad, but it's been a really interesting year. I think, you know, prior to his passing, I I have the enthusiasm that seemed to never end. The energy, the time, the creativity. Another curveball that came my way was was getting, you know, my dream job the day after his passing. And that kind of shifted a lot of my time, my energy, you know, and of course couple that with grieving. Um, I wasn't really sure how I would. I like to think I give time to grieve. Um, sometimes I think I have not. So it's been a, a really challenging balance. I think throughout the last eight or so months, it's been really important to recognize, um, I guess, uh, as a caregiver throughout ALS, our, our ALS journey, one of the things that uh, the chapter kind of drills into your head is taking care of yourself first and yes. then you can be able to take best care of your loved one. And that's been something that carries, you know, throughout my life now. I think, you know, it's surprised me at times how I have reacted in, in different ways. But what I have learned is recognizing, you know, when maybe it's best to say no, step back, I, I definitely have a lot of energy and enthusiasm for the, the things that I'm passionate about, but that's been kind of more front of mind, if you will, this last year. You know, it's it's really important to me to continue on this work, but it just, it looks a little bit differently for me and um, maybe more on the the day-to-day, -day, it's a little less time, but I want to have a bigger impact with with different things that I'm doing for the chapter in different ways. It just looks a little bit different, but I still find a really um, big sense of purpose throughout, you know, my, my volunteering and, and giving back to the ALS community. And again, that all goes back to my dad for kind of giving me that sense of purpose, which I mentioned in that blog spotlight too. I think that was really important and impactful for me. And that didn't really just impact me. It impacted our whole community that was able to find a purpose throughout, um, whether that was here spending time with my dad and, you know, caring for him, whether that was donating something in his name and in his memory to the chapter to continue helping, um, helping the fight or just having that, that overall camaraderie for my dad, which was so uplifting for him throughout those couple of years. 
we're talking, Lindsay, uh, here during uh, Volunteer Appreciation Month, a time to really reflect on the important role that volunteers play, certainly in the ALS Association. When you think back about your work, your experiences with the ALS Association, with the ALS community, it just strikes me that there are so many different ways that volunteers can serve. You talked about the walk and Walks are certainly so important to to the work, to raising awareness, to raising the critical funds needed for the fight, but so many other different ways that volunteers make a difference in the fight against ALS. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I've dabbled in a few of those, those different opportunities that have come up. And I think truly you kind of touched on that. There's something for everyone, whether that's, you know, involving your financial capacity to support the chapter or the fundraising going on, or that's your time. And, and the time is often, you know, most valuable because the chapter staff, you know, can be, you know, really dedicated to caring for those that are, you know, the, the pals and their, their caregiver, you know, support systems. Um, that time can be really, really impactful, you know, throughout the pandemic that, that really shined a light on yeah. on the importance of volunteering and you know being creative with with what you have with what you can do um, i think it was surprising to find out what we could do you know this last couple of years and you know speaking for the pittsburgh chapter that pandemic year we were the top walk team in the country and that that was simply because we were able to gather our community virtually and really get creative about how we we all got involved while you know, maintaining that distance. And uh, we're real excited to get back to things in person this year as everyone else is, I'm sure. But, um, you know, some of those ways outside of the walk that I have found, you know, some of my own friends and family have gravitated towards and, and really are quite simple as some of those social media ambassadors and, and writing letters to those, you know, to make an impact, you know, in, in government. And that's a simple way to do that. Or I wonder if you could share some of those resources when we put put out this podcast because there's a lot of simple ways, a few minutes on the computer, sending letters via email, via social media can, can really make an impact in your state. And we found that success in Pennsylvania. And we will absolutely share some of those resources in the show notes. And I know Ashley Smith on our advocacy team and all of her peers over there will be happy to uh, hear your plug for um, getting involved in some of those advocacy efforts as our advocates and volunteers are prone to do. Uh, Lindsay, before I let you go about all the important things that you have to do, do you have any closing thoughts for listeners as we reflect on the role of volunteers in the ALS Association? I think the number one thing, you know, with any any kind of giving, finding what your purpose or your passion within the cause. And, you know, for us, we had participated in the Ice Bucket Challenge years ago, had no direct impact on us and had no way to know that it would impact our family um, right. and our friends. But every couple of days, someone I know learns of my dad's story and they have also been impacted by ALS. And, you know, they kind of fall off of the, the path and lose, you know, the same, you know, I've talked about that, you kind of got to figure out how to stay involved and people, you know, as they've lost their loved one, as time passes, they, they do tend to move on to something different and, and it does become less front of mind. And I think that would be my takeaway for, for the audience is to figure out a way to carry on your loved one's legacy and memory through your involvement with the ALS Association, because the people that have experienced it firsthand truly understand it and can help tell the story that we're all trying to tell to help make a difference and help end ALS here by 2035. So it's going to take 
everyone to do that. And I hope and pray that, you know, we can get to a place where others don't have to learn about ALS. But, you know, in this time, I think it's important for those that were impacted to continue sharing that story, no matter how long has passed, how much time has passed, I should say. Well, a great note of inspiration and hope to close things on. Lindsay, thank you again so much for your time this week. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Well, as Lindsay mentioned, one of the ways volunteers can serve the fight against ALS is by signing up to be an advocate. Throughout this year, we are shining a spotlight on the ALS Association's public policy priorities. And this week, we turn to telehealth access. In the coming weeks and months, the public health emergency that was declared two years ago at the onset of the COVID pandemic will come to an end. That could lead to significant changes in how we access healthcare. To get a deeper understanding of what will happen after the public health emergency ends and the future of the fight to expand access to telehealth, I recently sat down with Krista Drobak, Executive Director of the Alliance for Connected Care. Let's hear from Krista now. Well, Krista, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Thank you for having me. It's an exciting time, and it's a topic that we've talked about a bit on this show over the last year or so. Um, But before we get into the kind of present and future of telehealth, Krista, can you tell us a little bit about the Alliance for Connected Care and, and what you all do over there? Yes, absolutely. The Alliance for Connected Care is a 501c6 advocacy organization. We are laser focused on Capitol Hill and the executive branch changing policy related to telehealth and remote patient monitoring to make it possible for people to get care outside of the four walls of an institution. We are staffed by a group of advocacy professionals. All of us have worked on Capitol Hill, or I worked in the Obama administration as well. So we kind of know how to operate in Washington. And so we just think through lots of legislative strategy and policy for how we can change the future. Yeah. And, you know, we've been running this real-time experiment over the last uh, two years, I guess, during the pandemic, where there's been some flexibilities around telehealth. How has the fight shifted from your perspective as as we think about permanent access? And we'll get into the issues of the of the public health emergency. But you know, how has how has this fight changed over the last two years? Dramatically, yeah. we've been at this for nine years, and prior to the pandemic, we had no Medicare fee for service data. So there was a conventional wisdom that had built up around allowing telehealth in Medicare uh, fee for service as just creating a situation where it was too convenient for people to get care. And so they were just going to sit on their couch and dial up their providers, and we were going to be paying uh, way too much for unnecessary care. That's sort of what people thought telemedicine was going to be. So as an advocate, it was nearly impossible to convince people otherwise because we didn't have Medicare fee-for-service data. They did not accept Veterans Administration data. They didn't accept um, private sector commercial data, even Medicare Advantage data, because Medicare Advantage is a capitated program. So it's more of a value-based type program. They would only accept fee-for-service. And when I say they, I mean Capitol Hill, the Congressional Budget Office, MedPAC, which is the advisory commission to Congress, the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services. All of these are very important players in making policy decisions about telehealth. And again, we would go talk to them and they would tell us what they thought and we didn't have any data to prove otherwise. So the the pandemic has dramatically shifted the debate because now we can take evidence to them and say, this is how it is. 
So we're in this weird kind of period of time right now where the public health emergency has kind of been routinely extended 90 days out. But, you know, the expectation is at some point the public health emergency connected to COVID-19 will wind down. It, it will eventually come to an end. What does that mean for some of the access to telehealth that we've all become accustomed to over the last two years? And, and how does that set up future fights over permanent access? Previous to the pandemic, if you are a Medicare beneficiary, the only services that you could access through fee-for-service Medicare were substance abuse um, counseling and treatment. And that was the result of a 2018 piece of legislation. Other than that, you had to be in a rural area and the provider, you'd have to be in a provider office. So it's not like you could be a rural um, beneficiary living at your house and um, access a provider. You would actually have to go to a rural health clinic or a rural hospital in order to access telehealth, which sort of seems silly because if you're at the hospital, you might as well just access the physicians that are there. Um, so there was virtually no telehealth in Medicare fee-for-service before the pandemic because of the restrictions. In addition to physicians, nurses, physicians assistants, there were there are physical therapists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, all of whom can do telehealth, but they are prohibited under the statute from providing telehealth. So they they can't even do it in rural areas. Um, so what happened in the first stimulus package that Congress passed was they created a situation where you could be a qualified provider and a qualified provider could practice telemedicine and a qualified provider had to be a provider that had seen the patient within the last three years. So there had to be an in-person component. Now that changed when everyone sort of said, wait a minute, you can't have an in-person requirement. And, um, so they got rid of that language. So right now we're basically at unfettered access to telehealth in uh, Medicare. You can see all kinds of different providers, including speech, um, you know, physical therapists. You don't even have to have a HIPAA compliant platform. Um, you can use FaceTime or um, you could use the phone, audio only. You know, we're, we're like, you know, the, the world is our oyster right now. And, um, and so once the public health emergency ends, the authority for CMS to waive all of this expires, which means under normal circumstances, we would just revert back to previous law, the 2019 law. But Congress about, I don't know, three weeks ago or so passed legislation that would provide 151 extra days of telehealth flexibility. Sounds like a strange number. They did that to align with other um, policies that they were extending. And also they did that because of the um, offsets. They need in Washington, however much a bill costs, you have to pay for it. And that's called an offset. And you don't want to cut another program by billions of dollars to pay for telehealth. So they negotiated 151 days. Now, they did also require two studies to be included and reported to Congress. So MedPAC, which is the advisory commission to Congress, has to produce a study. And the Office of the Inspector General at HHS has to produce a study. Those two studies are not due until June. So if the a public health emergency was to expire um, in December, you know, 151 days. I'm not sure if it would get us to when the studies would be due, but we're not going to pass legislation the day after the studies come. Congress is going to wait for the studies, then they're going to contemplate them, then they're going to craft legislation. So we're probably not even going to get 
what a picture of a permanent bill would be until the end of 23. So I'm expecting and what we're advocating for is more extensions until we, we just extend it until Congress feels comfortable with the permanent authority and we can pay for it. So the idea is to maintain the status quo until Congress can figure out a long term fix, a long term solution. Exactly. Because honestly, Jeremy, if we try to rush it, we're going to end up with policy that we don't want. For example, in-person requirements. We do not want someone to have to be have an in-person relationship in order to do a telemedicine visit. And those kinds of things are the guardrails, the, what, what Congress would call guardrails, what we call barriers. That's the kind of stuff that gets into bills when things get done in a hurry. And so we want to take our time get the data. We're pretty confident about when MedPAC and OIG are going to find in the data. So we want to get the policy right, which means we should be patient and just accept some additional extensions of the flexibilities. So we've been talking a a lot today, Krista, about policy in Washington, about kind of congressional authority and, and kind of big picture, you know, kind of DC lawmaking. But as somebody who grew up on a border of one state to the other, you know, this idea of accessing healthcare across state lines comes to mind. What's going on there? I know some governors have started to re-erect some of those barriers as, as the public health crisis lessons. Um, what are the fights for cross-state line access? What, what's going on there? Oh, Jeremy, this is one of my favorite topics. If I retire in my career, having helped move the ball forward on more licensure portability across state lines, I will feel very good because there is an artificial state line that prevents patients from accessing providers in other in other states, which just seems so silly to me. Like I understand a bar exam, you know, there are laws that are different in every sure. state um, and you have to know those laws, but why are we treating human beings across state lines separately? You know, like we're all people and practitioners are using clinical guidelines and it doesn't necessarily mean that the standard of care is going to be different in you know Wisconsin than it would be in Florida but licensure is regulated at the state level and there have been significant i guess i would say apparatus that have built up over time with these with medical boards and all kinds of licensing boards i mean there's licensing boards for everything and those boards they protect public health, and, but they also get revenue from the licensing. And the idea of not having those out-of-state providers licensed, will they will lose revenue. They make the argument that patient safety will be je- you know, jeopardized because someone isn't licensed in the state where the patient is located. We argue that During the pandemic, all 50 states waived some form of licensure and there weren't mass patient safety problems. And in fact, there was an increase in access. And the reason why those licensure flexibilities were put in place is because we thought we would have a surge in one state and all the providers would be busy. And so then other, you know, practitioners from other states could come in and help alleviate that capacity problem. But what we ended up seeing is people were just seeing their regular doctors without having to get in the car Um, or, you know, people who needed specialty visits like ALS. You need to see different specialists and sometimes they're not in your state. And so you've gotten this devastating diagnosis and then you have to, you know, pile the family in the car and drive three states over in order to have a consultation. So there's, you know, there's just no reason for that. And the, the pandemic 
just like with reimbursement, the pandemic gave us the data to show that we don't have patient safety problems. So we have been doing a significant amount and you can look at our website, connectwithcare.org. We sent an open letter to all 50 governors signed by 230 organizations asking governors to keep the flexibilities in place. And those flexibilities are expiring and people are calling patients and saying you have to either drive across the state line to have a telehealth visit or you have to drive to the office and have an in-person visit. So our idea is a national compact like a driver's license that you are licensed in one state, you're regulated um, in the state, and there is significant coordination across states, but that you really only have to carry one license. Makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, so many questions that I could ask you, but I, I want to touch on an access issue. Um you know, we talk about the ability, just kind of the the legal authority, the licensed authority to practice telehealth, to access it. Meaningless if you can't actually get online, uh, if you don't have the resources available. So, so what is being done at the level of making sure that there's equality in, in everyone's ability to access these flexibilities if they are in fact made permanent? Oh, that's a really big question because it's rural and urban. Sure. Uh, we talk a lot about rural broadband and the need for broadband, but there's also a problem in urban areas with affording the data packages. You might yeah. have a computer, but you can't afford the Wi-Fi package. I mean, it's, you know, a hundred bucks a month if you're lucky. Um, and so there's a couple different things that are stop gaps. One is audio only telehealth. Um, and that is truly an access issue that if you wanted to communicate with your provider, the Medicare statute says audio visual, but CMS used the public health emergency authority to create an audio only option. And um, that will, again, that will expire with the emergency and people will have to start using video. Well, I mean, if you buy your data by the gigabyte um, and you you know, have significant healthcare needs, you won't be able to actually have video visits, um, which again means you're getting in your car and driving um, for an in-person visit. And then in the rural areas, you know, we're, we've been very supportive of any kind of broadband package. I mean, there's, this is an area where educators and, you know, 911 and I mean, there's so many needs for broadband in rural areas that we've been part of a larger coalition that's not just healthcare providers, but everybody who's saying that rural areas need to be better connected. A lot of work ahead. Uh, Chris, before I let you go, any other thoughts that you want to leave listeners with as we think about the future of the fight for um, expanded access to telehealth? Contact your members of Congress. We need to keep the pressure on as much as possible to get them to act on this. So don't be shy about advocating, um, you know, whoever your member of Congress is, you know, two senators and your congressional representative, call them and tell them to expand telehealth in Medicare. And we will share some links in the show notes so folks can do just that. Uh, certainly telehealth access, a priority for the association, something that will be discussed during the association's annual advocacy conference. Uh, Krista Droback, thanks again so much for spending time with us this week. Thanks for having me. I want to thank my guests this week, Lindsay Literati and Krista Droback. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and please find time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. But we will share links to resources on volunteering, on becoming an advocate, and on the future of telehealth access in the show notes. 
Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Thank you.